Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. In this episode, we look at a factor that Carl Jung felt was a central need for psychological healing. We discuss what it is, the circumstances that constellate this need in our lives, and the attitude necessary to cultivate it. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Among all my patients in the second half of life, that is to say, over 35, there has not been one whose problem in the last resort was not that of finding a religious outlook on life. It's safe to say that every one of them fell ill because he had lost what the living religions of every age have given to their followers, and none of them has been really healed who did not regain his religious outlook. So I think it's time to use a couple of words that I've been avoiding up until this moment. And that is the, the words religious and religion. The truth is, I haven't been so much avoiding their use as delaying it. Because we can't talk about the symbolic life without acknowledging that it has to do with a religious sensibility. What Jung in this quote calls a religious outlook on life. Now, I've delayed making use of these words because, well, they tend to be fairly loaded terms for many people, and this causes them to stop listening as soon as they're uttered. Most of us, if we're honest, have a pretty fixed idea about what religion is and means. And frankly, most of what passes for a conversation about religion in the public sphere, on the news, in popular culture, and in politics, is just too simplistic and too superficial to be of much use for anyone who is sincerely searching for a meaningful way of living in the world. That said... I want to invite you in what follows to suspend any fixed ideas you may have about these words, religious and religion. When you hear the word religious, don't think in terms of a fixed thing, a a specific tradition such as 
Buddhism or Christianity. The religious outlook is an attitude. It is, as Jung says, that which the living religions of every age have given to their followers. It's what the religions have given. It's not the religions themselves. In other words, the religious outlook is not an answer. It's a way of asking a question about life. And that central symbol of religion, sometimes called God or reality or Tao or great mystery, is likewise not an answer, but the ultimate question. It's a question about the meaningfulness of life and our place in it. One of the main things that Jung suggests in this quote is that the religious need is particularly felt in the second half of life. And this he locates sometime after the age of 35. Now, briefly stated, in Jung's concept, the first half of life is a time of expansion. It's a time of establishing oneself in the world, getting an education, getting married, having a family, embarking on a career. The second half of life is a time of turning inward. Instead of expansion out into the world, it involves a deepening of the inner life, the search for meaning and the fulfillment of one's authentic being, which Jung calls the process of individuation. Now, this schema and the way that Jung lays it out tends to be expressed in a linear and chronological way. And this is because the so-called second half of life often begins with what we've come to call the midlife crisis, which is really a recognition that much, if not most, of life is behind us. And this, of course, brings with it intimations of the ultimate end of life. So we can understand, then, why meaning takes on such a central importance at this time. That is, if we allow ourselves to be affected by this experience, and we don't try to defend against it by some desperate clinging to youth. We cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning, says Jung in his essay on the stages of life. For what was great in the morning will be little at evening, and what in the morning was true will by evening have become a lie. When we talk about the second half of life, however, 
it might be better to think of it not so much as a reflection of time or of age, but rather more as a reflection of life experience. For really, we're initiated into the second half of life whenever there's been a significant disturbance in the neat equilibrium of our lives. Now, this can come in the form of what might be called a, a revelation, right? A, a, an awakening to the sacredness of life and the call to live from that awareness. But more often, most likely, this disturbance comes through an encounter with suffering. Trauma, illness, loss. And this can happen at any age. It's not reserved only for those in midlife and beyond. The experience of suffering rends the veil of innocence and awakens us to the fact of our vulnerability, the undeniable frailty of human existence. It's this fact that's recounted in the story of the Buddha and his awakening to his true vocation. And in that story, as a young man, the Buddha's sheltered by his father, the king. He lives in a palace and he's surrounded by a life of pleasure and luxury. And one day he ventures beyond the palace walls and sees three sights, an old man, a person suffering from disease, in a dead body. And in this way, he learns about aging and sickness and death. And this is his initiation into the reality of the inevitability of suffering. And after these three sights, he sees a fourth sight. He sees an ascetic monk who has devoted himself to finding the cause of suffering. And as a result of these difficult revelations, the young prince resolves to become an ascetic himself and to set off in search for the end of the suffering of all beings. And his quest will lead him to the experience of enlightenment and to his becoming the Buddha. Now, short of enlightenment and Buddhahood, this is essentially the trajectory that Jung describes for his patients. The need in the so-called second half of life, after having become acquainted with suffering in some form, of going in search of a religious outlook on life. Not having this outlook, he tells us, was at the root of their psychological distress. There has not been one, Jung declares, whose problem in the last resort was not that of finding a religious outlook on life. There has not been one. And that seems kind of hard to believe. Not one? 
I mean, could it really be true that the cause of illness in every one of Jung's older patients was the lack of a religious outlook? It's hard not to wonder if that isn't some kind of exaggeration on Jung's part. Is he really saying that a religious outlook is essential to our psychological health? Well, in a word, yes. In my book, I detail some of the studies that give evidence for the psychological benefits of religion, what the researchers call the protective effects of religion. But here I want to look at Jung's understanding of the role of psychoanalytic treatment. The goal of analysis for Jung is not a cure. The goal is a development of a psychological attitude that's able to confront and integrate the difficulties and struggles that are an inevitable part of being human. It's not the presence of struggle or pain that's the problem. Those are difficult to be sure, but they are simply a given reality with human existence. The problem is the lack of an adequate means for understanding, for relating to and for metabolizing those struggles. And that, as I've said before, is some vehicle of meaning. Meaninglessness inhibits fullness of life, Jung says, and is therefore equivalent to illness. Meaning makes a great many things endurable, perhaps everything. Now, it's important to be clear that what Jung says is that his patients needed a religious outlook. He's not advocating for membership in a particular religious community. Those two things are separate, and they may or may not coincide. But for Jung, it's the religious outlook or attitude that is primary, not the specific form through which it's professed. It's the role of our religious traditions to guide individuals to the needed outlook, and it is that outlook which is ultimately the healing factor. So what is a religious outlook? And what does it consist of? Well, let me suggest at least part of an answer by turning to the story of Jacob from the book of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible. This is the account of Jacob's meeting with an angel as he travels to meet his brother Esau, whom he has badly wronged. And it goes like this. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. 
When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he wrenched Jacob's hip at its socket, so that the socket of his hip was strained as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for dawn is breaking. But he answered, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Said the other, What is your name? He replied, Jacob. Said he, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with beings divine and human and have prevailed. There really isn't much that needs to be added to this story. It's the story of struggle and the blessing that comes from engaging in that struggle. As Jacob is traveling along, he's beset by doubts and fears. He's received a promise from God for abundance, but he's painfully aware that the reality he's facing looks very different than that promise. The prospect of his brother's wrath and possible vengeance. And then, when he's all alone, a condition which we've seen before is one of the prerequisites for extraordinary encounters. A man appears seemingly out of nowhere and wrestles with Jacob until dawn. And it is this wrestling I want to suggest that constitutes the religious outlook. In the version of the story I just read, when the man or angel renames Jacob as Israel, he says it's because you have striven with beings divine and human and have prevailed. Other versions say you have striven with God and humans. The name Israel, it's suggested, means the one who strives with God or the one who struggles with God. It's the struggle that matters, not the resolution. That's the takeaway here. The religious outlook is not one of possessing certainty but one of striving and struggling. It's not about neat or simple answers, but rather asking difficult questions. Wisdom, says the theologian and philosopher Raymond Panikkar, can't be known as long as one is not wrestling with absorbing and somehow beginning an intimate interchange with it. In other words, you can't just adopt easy answers. You have to wrestle with the questions. And the poet Rilke agrees. Don't search for answers, he says. And he says this because answers that are arrived at too quickly can't be lived in a meaningful or authentic way. And the point is 
Rilke goes on, to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have questions about anything you heard in the episode or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag DigitalYulm. Finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored in this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available now from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.